Becoming a contributor to an existing software project can be a daunting task for an engineer. A common convention is to add a README file to your repository to serve as a trailhead, which gives new visitors step-by-step instructions for running, exploring, and understanding the structure of the codebase. The Missing README is the recently published book which prepares new software engineers to both survive and succeed. Learning to code in school, in a boot camp, or independently can prepare you to write software. This book prepares you to do it effectively in a professional setting. I speak with authors Chris Ricomini and Dimitri Riaboy about The Missing Readme, a guide for new software engineers. Dimitri and Chris, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to have you both here. Well, you guys have written a recent book called The Missing Readme. For senior engineers, I think the title will be very evocative of its contents. For a junior engineer who doesn't yet know about Readme, what is this reference manual? So the manual covers kind of a few different subject areas, all of which we think are applicable to software engineers that are just ending, entering the workforce and probably for engineers a few years beyond that. The book is kind of broken down into some technical stuff that you don't generally learn in like a new college curriculum. So this is like stuff around continuous integration and deployment, operations, on-call, metrics and monitoring, that kind of stuff as well as test and design. And then also covers some of, I'm hesitant to say software skills, but maybe some of the stuff uh, that's more about how to exist and work in an actual company. So working with your manager, how to learn, how to learn from you know more senior engineers, how to get involved in different engineering programs, stuff like that. So that, that's sort of a, a broad stroke at, at what's inside the book. Makes sense. Uh, the book pretty much tells the story that a career is a journey. You're always learning. On that journey, what's the best point at which someone should pick up this book? During their education, when they're looking for their first job? Or, uh, yeah, I guess, where do I begin picking up the missing readme? Yeah, I think we wrote it with a character in mind who would be just starting their first uh, engineering job and experiencing that transitioned from sort of learning how to program at a boot camp or in an undergrad program and learning kind of the theory and being able to program by themselves and then suddenly being part of a team and having to work on code that's owned by a team and possibly even written by people who are no longer at the company. Now they have managers and their processes and they're sort of encountering all of that and thinking, well, what is all this? How do I engage with it most productively? What are the sort of unseen things that maybe I should be doing. Part of the inspiration for writing the book was that both Chris and I independently have repeatedly had this experience with new folks joining our teams. And it turns out there's a lot of knowledge that software engineers learn sort of by osmosis from each other, just culturally. It isn't really taught in schools and properly so, because it's not really computer science. It's not theory. It's just kind of the practice, right? It's just when you work at a company, this is how things go. But because it's this sort of a set of skills that's not really formalized, most people come in and they don't know it, and then they aren't really officially taught it, and they just sort of learn it by stumbling about and somebody saying, oh, hey, don't do that, and did you remember to put in the logging? And they go, what's logging? You know, that sort of thing. So we're just trying to accelerate that process for people and have a book that explains why things are the way they are. We also encountered a lot of folks learn these things by you know, well, Joe Bob is doing it this way, so I'll do what Joe Bob does. But they 
maybe Joe Bob has a reason for doing that, and there is kind of a theory behind it. But over time and over multiple generations of this sort of thing handing off, a generation being about two years in, in Silicon Valley, the reason certain practices are in place gets lost and people start just doing them possibly slightly off and not knowing why and just kind of knowing by word of mouth that that's what you're supposed to do. We try to uncover some of that in the book so that the natural reaction of a new person who goes, what is all this and why is it happening? Or I guess I just have to do it that way and they don't understand why. And so they don't do it quite right. We want to address that core. And that's why I think also the book is fairly widely applicable because we try to explain the reasons behind different processes and different practices rather than specifically say, this is how you do this thing in Go, this is how you do this thing in JavaScript, this is how you do that thing in Python, or if you follow this particular methodology. We're going to explain the thinking behind these processes so that wherever new engineers find themselves, they can read that and understand how it applies to whatever particular process or practice their team uh, has. I did a fairly traditional university program and got out of academia, got my first software engineering role. And uh, one of the things I was surprised by, I had no exposure to version control. So I had to learn that on the job. Probably a pretty common experience for a lot of people. And, you know, after being on it for a few days, I was thinking, why hadn't I started this way? You know, this is this big gap in my knowledge. Do either of you have any personal stories along those lines of things you were surprised you didn't know when you began your more professional aspects of your career? Oh, I think both of us do. I'll tell mine really briefly. Chris has an extra fun one that's that's in the book. So one of my first tasks, possibly like the first real task at my first sort of real dot-com Silicon Valley company job was actually to figure out how to put my team's source code into some sort of version control down to, I'm aging myself, having to choose between like, should we use SVN or CVS? So uh, I definitely went through that transition because when I graduated, source control existed, uh, but it wasn't quite as uh, ubiquitous as it is today. I think it's less of a thing now. I know a lot of universities have people committing to get a lot of the bootcamp programs do, but uh, there are other problems uh, like, so there's version controls and checking in your code, and then there's versioning your code and like dealing with version numbers of libraries and things like that. And we talk about that a lot in the book, but I'll let Chris talk about his uh, source code story. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to dive in and say I, I had a very uh, similar experience where when I joined, uh, I wasn't really familiar with version control at all. And this was back in the day and we were using a system called CVS. And so much like most people still actually interact with their version control system, I was pretty much just like copying and pasting commands off of a document that described how to you know, branch and merge and tag and all that kind of stuff. And managed to corrupt the entire code base for the company <laughs> and unwittingly and uh, ended up going home and coming back the next day. And, and, you know, a chunk of the senior engineers had been there all night trying to recover the code. So it was, that was very early in my career, but a good, a good lesson learned on, on the importance of understanding the tooling that you're working with. And, and like Dimitri said, we, we talk about a lot of that in the book, not necessarily, you know, Git versus C, uh, CVS versus SVN versus Mercurial or whatever, but at a little bit higher level understanding different merge and release strategies and stuff like that. So that engineers, when they enter the workforce, kind of get what's going on and why things are happening the way they are. 
I mean, a similar story I had is when I joined at PayPal early on, uh, I was a junior engineer. I, I was really like, aside from like make with C, I was not terribly familiar with build systems. Most of my experiences in like PHP, Python, some of these more dynamic languages or server side languages. And so for the good first year or so, I spent my time building Java inside my IDE with Eclipse rather than using an actual build system. <laughs> and it took me a while to like understand that there, at the time it was Ant, but you know, whether it's Gradle or Maven or whatever, uh, that there were actually like systems designed to build and manage dependencies and stuff. So there's, these are the kinds of things that like, they just happen. And if you're not aware, it, it doesn't, it, you're not, you're not really even aware of what's going on. It can cause a lot of friction for you. Your example with taking down the repository is one I'm really glad you shared because I feel like every engineer, or maybe I could say it this way, you're not a software engineer until you've broken everything at least once. But that's a terrifying experience, especially you know if you're new to a job. Do you have any advice for how a fledgling software engineer should best manage a situation like that? I would say, first off, this step happens, and it's your team's job and especially your manager's job to make sure that they don't give you anything that you can break too badly. So things will happen, especially you know if you're in smaller companies where there just aren't the safety nets. But it's expected that new folks mess up. In fact, everybody messes up. Senior folks mess up all the time too. And we build tools to try to mitigate the effects of that. So first off, you know, try to avoid that, but also don't be pet so petrified of making a mistake that, that you don't, don't make a move. Uh, that's one. And second, once you realize that something went wrong, the most critical thing is to immediately say what happened. Get people's help. Don't try to sort of work it out and to, before somebody notices. That generally will only lead to badness. So immediately raise the flag, say, help, something went wrong, you know. Uh, and uh, I think because all of us have done this at some point, you will find that uh, your teammates are pretty understanding. You know, it's it's not the, what's the expression? It's in politics. Uh, it, it's not the, the crime, it's the cover-up, right? So, yeah, uh, I remember at one of my jobs, which shall remain nameless for this particular anecdote, there's one time that I recall an actual email going out to all the engineers explaining why somebody just got fired. Like people got fired, you know, more than once during my tenure there. But generally, people try to keep things respectful, you know, talk bad about people who are, you know, who are being let go, that sort of thing. One time, the, I don't remember if it was like VP of engineering or somebody pretty high up sent an email to everybody saying, normally we don't talk about that stuff, but this time I'm going to make an exception so that everybody's clear. Because in the story was essentially that somebody made a pretty significant mistake and then for several weeks tried to sort of cover it up and fix it up you know, scrambling to fix it while things were affecting customers in a bad way, et cetera. And this was a junior person who just did not tell anybody else. And that was the problem. The problem wasn't that they made a mistake. The mistake was fine. And that's why the, the engineering leader sent an email to explain that it's not the initial problem. It's the fact that then they sat on it for three weeks or something, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and it caused material damage to the company. It caused material damage to the customers. That's not acceptable thing, right? Get help immediately when you make a big mistake. Things will be fine. Good advice. Well, another thing I think a lot of new software engineers may not be used to is collaboration and teamwork and interacting with other roles. What do, sort of lessons lie in the book for someone who's going to have all those experiences and new at their first job? Yeah, so I think we cover a few topics. Obviously, I think 
sort of tactically one of the most common places people interact with each other on the software engineering side is code reviews. So there's a whole chapter dedicated to that, both on being a reviewer and a reviewee. And, you know, it's got practical tips on how to um, interact, get feedback, work in progress, uh, nits, all that kind of stuff that you would normally, again, after a few years in, in industry, you start to get a reflex to be able to do that stuff. But but coming in, you don't even know like what nits are and, and that kind of stuff or what a whip, you know, PR might look like. So it's got some of that. It's also got... A lot of discussion around collaboration around design, which is something that uh, I think new engineers really have to spend some time getting up to speed on. And so it talks about with design, both working independently and then also uh, collaboratively. And we kind of discuss it in, in a in a process by which you you kind of oscillate back and forth between doing some work yourself, trying to synthesize the feedback you've gotten, and then gathering feedback, talking with your team, talking across team, talking with trusted you know technical leads and, and managers and stuff. And so it talks a bit about collaborating and running meetings in in that way, and as well as participating in other design discussions. And then at the beginning of the book, we have I think uh, slightly more generic discussions around how to interact with the team and learn, um, how to work with your manager, how to do one-on-ones, how to, you know, all the standard stuff that you would do with your manager. On the team front, um, we talk about asking questions, you know, how to, how to time box and get a description of the problem that you have before you go off and ask someone and, and show a proof of work sort of for the investigation you've done so that you have a place to start when you engage in a discussion with another engineer rather than just sort of throwing out random questions. So we, we do our best, I think, to try and equip the engineer with a set of practical tools like time boxing and, and stuff like that, that they can use to ask questions productively, collaborate productively, and, and sort of, you know, both get what they need and also not, not get too much in the way um, and not feel like they're getting in the way, which oftentimes engineers will do. They'll, they'll feel so tentative about asking questions or t- timid about asking questions that they they try and figure everything out themselves and they might burn a whole week on something that the person sitting next to them just knows the answer to immediately. So that's the, the gist of it. Yeah, there's kind of, we try to encourage healthy, productive collaboration throughout the book because it's kind of hard. There's, there can be a few different extremes that people gravitate to that, that aren't particularly productive. Like, for example, with asking questions, sometimes you get new folks who do not want to ask a question because they feel like they should know everything and they get hired because they're supposed to be a software engineer and how could they not know how to do this thing with Git or whatever. And like Chris described, they just go super deep and spend days on something that somebody could have answered for them and just isn't that important that they they really understand deeply. That's one extreme where they just waste a lot of time, a lot of their time, a lot of company time on something that could be answered easily. And the other extreme is when like they just ask everything. Right? How do you do this? How do you do that? Where's the code for this? Where's the code for that? How do I look look something up? And it's just too much, right? At that point, whoever they're asking, possibly multiple people, are just not getting anything done because they're just getting barraged with these uh, very basic questions that could be answered by a simple Google search or looking things up on the wiki. So, how do you know which one of those uh, you're actually doing? Sometimes people aren't sure. You know, they think maybe they're asking too many questions and actually they're not asking enough. So we give some advice around that kind of stuff and how to sort of find the right uh, the right balance. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, software engineering is a discipline. You you study it and it's a craft to take on in a lot of ways. If I want to be great at that, maybe I can look at great habits. Like if you think of an, an Olympian in the 
participating in the Olympics, it's not just that they do their uh, particular sport every day. They probably have diet involved and a lot of other factors and just, you know, their path towards that gold medal if they're going to get it. For people new who maybe are, are unrefined in certain ways, some, what are some of the aspects of the discipline of software engineering that you think people don't take as seriously as they should? I'd say there's some amount of learning outside the job, practicing things outside the job. Again, with some people, they live and breathe coding and like actually probably what they should do is pull back a little bit and hang out with people who don't do software so that they get a little bit more multidimensional. And with some people, you know, they wind up going to the job and then do their job and all the learning they do is whatever they're exposed at the job they particularly happen to land in. And I've definitely found in my career it to be extremely valuable when I've read academic white papers, read blogs by prominent software engineers, and just expose myself to the world of ideas out there. We also caution against sort of reading the latest, greatest thing on Hacker News and trying to implement it at your company right away. That can be a, a bit of a recipe for disaster. But making sure you get kind of a, a varied diet to go with your with your analogy, just looking at multiple sources and reading without letting it completely overwhelm your life and just become everything you do. You'd mentioned side projects, though, as being a part of most software engineers' lives. Uh, could you comment, I guess, on your own side projects and if you see success in collaborators you've had, how important is it that people should tinker on the side? So I think to be clear, side projects are something that not everyone can afford to do that. Not everyone has, you know, time to spare outside of work and stuff like that. But it is definitely a way to build a lot of great skills. So, you know, for example, for me, I don't do much in the way of side projects these days. I've got three kids and we're, we're pretty busy. But, you know, when I was younger, I did spend some time on side projects and I... You did write a book, Chris. <laughs> that was... <laughs> That's a good point. Anyway, I, I did spend some time doing uh, side projects a, a while ago. And what I found was that oftentimes the value of the side projects was not the project itself, but the learning, whether it was some new stack that I was experimenting with. So I learned a lot of front-end stacks this way, or even uh, new technologies or cloud. It's, so it's a, it's a good way to get involved and learn quickly in something that you might not have easy access to at work. Plus, you know, you don't really have to focus as much on tests and production code. You can focus more on like learning how to interact with the te technology and how it fits together with other stuff. So I find it, find it really valuable for that. I think the danger with that kind of thing is it can be very deceptive if you spend, you know, a few hours a week hacking away on something and then it works or appears to work for your side project. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a great idea or a great thing to use in a production environment that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, are interacting with on a uh, on a daily basis if it's a product that's got a lot of users or you know if you've got a large team with dozens and dozens of pizza people so i think it can again sort of a, on a cautionary side it can warp your reality a bit um, but it is a really good way i find to to learn technology yeah i, I would just add that i i think it's very good to do side projects as you sort of if you have the passion and the time to do that uh that, that can be great Sometimes people sort of pick them up because they want to learn a particular technology um, and the project they're doing isn't of particular interest to, interest to them. And I think the more you're sort of interested in the problem rather than the tech, the better the results will be. Uh, if you're just like 
I want to take this program in C and rewrite it into Rust, but you don't actually care about what the program does. You know, you, you might run out of steam, or at least I might run out of steam, uh, if it's something where, you know, maybe home automation or whatever, like whatever kind of thing that somebody's actually into, or a website that you're trying to create for your hobby or something. Solving an actual problem that you care about is much more motivating than just sort of abstractly practicing a thing because it's like a kata and you want to get better as an engineer, right? Uh, do something that's going to be rewarding to you. Absolutely. Well, one of the points the book highlights is the importance of meetups and conferences as one of many educational resources, although uh, I like the fact that it highlights to do those things sparingly. Can you comment a bit on that? And uh, maybe if you have any anecdotes about value you've gotten out of certain conferences or meetups. Yeah. So for me, I, I kind of look at it as a you know return on investment where a multi-day conference is a pretty significant amount of time, for example, to put into doing something uh, versus the other things you could be doing. And so the, the return should be pretty high. And so there are definitely conferences that are quite valuable, but there are also people that I think sort of become professional conference hoppers and spend a little too much time in that area to the point where the returns start to diminish a little bit. I think also these days with both virtual conferences and uh, recordings, it's gotten a lot easier to get the content that you're really after at a conference without actually having to go. So a lot of the value I think with conferences is really on the social side and meeting people, getting uh, connections and that kind of stuff. And so that's something that is there. And that's can be both with, you know, your coworkers who you go to the conference with uh, building bonds and stuff. And it can also be uh, just within the industry, meeting speakers or meeting people that you used to work with or that just share your interests. That's all super valuable. But I think it's important to recognize there's a there's a scale from you know multi day very big to you know a meetup that might be once every month or two, which is obviously less investment and I, honestly still pretty high return in terms of the learnings you can get out of it and uh, the people that you meet. Um, and then even further down the spectrum is like you know consuming the talks on YouTube or uh, after the fact asynchronously, where the investment in time is pretty much the length of the talk um, and the, the value is there, although you can't interact as much with a speaker. So I think what we try to encourage is just be thoughtful about where you spend your time and in which areas. And in some cases, it's going to be great to go do a, you know, a full-blown con- conference. And in other times, you might, just, <laughs> you might just want to learn something very specific and you come across a talk or something. Then in that case, consuming the, the, the video or something is probably a, a better use of time or just reaching out to the uh, speaker directly, which is, again, something we encourage. Like oftentimes, these people love to talk about whatever it is that they're, they're working on or presenting on. And if you simply get in contact with them, you, you might get them quite engaged. And so that's something that I think, again, new engineers can be a little bit timid about. But once you start down that path, it can be quite rewarding and you can build you know, really good uh, relationships with people. So, Yeah, I would add that there are a lot of different kinds of meetups and conferences and just thinking about why that thing exists and who is putting it on helps. Uh, so there are a lot of conferences that are put on by particular companies and um, they are they can be technical conferences, but they're still uh, in uh, in a big part a marketing exercise. <laughs> there are a few that come to mind, but we'll save that. And then there are some that are sort of more focused on the technology. And if you're there, if you're there to get exposed to the kinds of products that say AWS offers, and you go to AWS reInvent, right? That's great. And they have some good technical talks, and a lot of it is about trying to sell you more AWS services, right? So you should just like know that that's what's going on and come into that with, with that mindset and think about how many, how much time of, out of your year you want to spend being, being sold to, right? Even if it comes with benefits like 
getting technical information. And then there are some conferences, there are academic conferences that are obviously all about kind of the the latest and greatest ideas, uh, but maybe a little bit less applicable to work. There are some uh, conferences like uh, Strange Loop is a wonderful conference that is kind of very idea focused and it's much more community driven and less corporate sponsored. The more you can get to those types of things, the more probably you're going to get the return on the value on the, on the time spent. When I start as a software engineer, I wanted to have some way of measuring my contribution. You know, what did I done? What have I accomplished for the team? And how could I improve upon that? The most naive thing I could do would be to measure the lines of code I wrote per day, which is sort of, I mean, not terrible, but obviously not a total picture of uh, my contribution. Do you guys have any thoughts on that unit value of delivery that a software engineer contributes to the things they're working on? That might be a whole other book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And these days I've been, you know, managing engineers for 10 years. Like if I could do that, I'd be probably making three times as much money. Well, how do you know which uh, <laughs> engineers that you've managed are on track and which might need a little bit more guidance? Yeah, fair enough. Fundamentally, the engineers are there to solve problems for the company, right? And uh, like you said, lines of code isn't a very good proxy for that. You can churn a lot of code that actually in the end, doesn't really deliver value, right? It's satisfied customers, it's problems solved, it's features delivered, right? It's analysis done uh, or enabled. Other engineers whose work is now faster or better because you put in some optimizations or improve some workflow, that sort of thing. So broadly, I try to focus on impact. And when I talk to engineers about their career growth, it's how can you grow into making more impact? Sometimes it's by getting really deep on some set of software skills. Sometimes it's actually by understanding better the, the problem domain. Sometimes it's getting better at handling relationships because it's a it's a team sport writing software. But fundamentally, it's about impact, right? So less about lines of code or number of pull requests or things like that. It's what did those all those things accomplish? And I even recommend writing down sort of not just I implemented this feature that we should do X, but I implemented this feature and then we can observe X effect because that's the actual impact the work had. That said, there isn't like a unit of impact you can measure, right? There isn't, oh, I made 17 impacts this month. Uh, I some Something I often caution people about when I'm talking to them, especially when they're considering like where to work, is impact is kind of a funny thing because you kind of have to, think about the impact of what. So for example, you can go to work at Google and change a button from like red to blue and that can impact a billion people, right? That can generate a massive amount of revenue in, in absolute terms. I, I can do a whole lot of things, but intrinsically it doesn't feel like, you, <laughs> like you've done a whole lot when you've changed the button from red to blue. Whereas you could work at a much smaller company and you know, build a whole product that only 10 people use. And that, that can feel like a very big impact for that company. And so you kind of have to be thoughtful, I think, also just about the kind of impact that you care about having and, you know, sort of what fits best with your, you know, your expectations uh, and, and hopes for your career. Some people really like being in sort of a big fish in a small pond and are happy to work with 10 customers. And other people really want to have, you know, global scale civilization changing effect on stuff. And I think you can you can do both of those in both environments, but definitely having six of the world's population using your product, it gives you, uh, as a company, a lot more possibility to have an impact, although individually it might feel less so. Absolutely. 
Well, the chapter I most wish I had had to read when I was starting out my career would be chapter four, writing operable code. Could you guys give a quick summary and maybe we'll dive into some of these topics in greater detail? Yeah. So this chapter, I think when I left LinkedIn, um, I found that I had entered LinkedIn as like a fairly entry-level software engineer and I had left as sort of a, a staff-level engineer. And I felt that a lot of what I had learned was uh, in this area around operability. And it was really metrics, logging, configuration, and things of that nature, how, how to write code that could withstand network outages and stuff like that. And so I had actually written down sort of as I left LinkedIn, um, just a, a lot of the stuff that I felt like, uh, this would be really, I, I wish more people knew this, this is good information. And so it kind of sat for few years, I kind of considered, oh, maybe you could do a class or teach or something, but it, it never, nothing like that ever happened. And so this chapter contains a lot of that kind of information in it. So it's introduction to metrics, counters and gauges and histograms and the gotchas with histograms and stuff like that. And then there's discussions about configuration. And, you know, we touch on like everyone wants to do dynamic configuration and, you know, have etcd or something change things magically while the application runs. And we can talk about trade-offs with that. We touch on uh, logging and logging sensitive data and, you know, the impact uh, logging has on your performance of your application and string interpolation. So it's just, it's a a list uh, or a collection rather of, you know, important stuff that you need to write real production code and something that's going to run for, you know, years that many people are going to have to maintain and support and debug um, and how to do that in a robust way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of the main value of that chapter to me is actually sort of the introduction. The goal there being to get the new engineer to think about how actually just writing the code that solves a problem is different from writing code that runs for years and that other people have to maintain. Uh, There is a pretty significant difference, and that's the main difference between sort of knowing how to program and having gone to like a CS undergrad or, or a bootcamp or something like that, or just learned from tutorials online and working at a company that treats software as a product, right? And that's one that is like, it's a huge difference and people don't really talk about it. And a lot of the time, even it's not covered in new hire orientation, things like that, right? A new hire gets some ticket, they implement some feature, they, it goes into code review and the senior engineer goes, that's great, but you didn't increment any of the counters so that we don't know that the operation happened. And then the new engineer goes, what is a counter? What, what is it supposed to do? And I didn't know I'm supposed to do that, right? And then like the sort of the why of that also gets lost. So we want to cover the why and just like get people to start thinking about the operating, about about the software existing in an operational environment and the fact that it's different than just getting the thing to work and to return the right result, right? It's not about passing the test once. So that's kind of the the main thing that this chapter's intent tries to uh, convey. And then there's a lot of the practical metrics and logging and all that. The logging section is pretty fun for me. I spent a depressing amount of time, a fraction of my life uh, on logging. You know, when, when we just go and, and learn to program, like logging is print foo and you read the thing, you print it out and that's that's logging. And in an operational environment, that's not what it is. And you can't just ship a program that spits out a bunch of garbage and it 
other people will have to read or deal with, or maybe it doesn't give them the right information. How do you format it? Uh, there's a whole ecosystem of tools now that process logging and like visualize log data, etc. Just having sort of random uh, English sentences or multi-line messages, uh, it's a total disaster. But it's a disaster that like you don't realize is a disaster until you try to process it on the other end, which most people don't get to. So they kind of have to learn it the hard way. So highlighting the fact that logs should be structured and there should be a system to what's in there and log levels are a thing that you should know about and understand what they mean versus just sort of, well, I saw in this other file, they're printing to log their info, so I'll print this here. There's a lot of that kind of information. None of it is particularly complex, but it's just stuff you should know. When I was learning to code, I was pretty sloppy, uh, sort of as you were describing, just print statements and uh, my code would write to standard out and I'd look at it and uh, I didn't know there was much more to it. Uh, I, in fact, for a while kind of resisted log leveling because I, I didn't get it. Messages felt so ephemeral to me. Uh, right. And that's the natural sort of way that that goes. Like everybody does that. It's not, <laughs> it's not you, it's everybody. Well, so for people who are still working under that assumption, can we maybe describe some of uh, what logging looks like in a professional production environment? What's there besides standard out? Well, there there is actually a school of thought that you should only log the standard out. So there is that. But generally, logs are there to inform, and you want different levels of information uh, depending on what's going on, right? So that's where the log levels come from. If you're trying to debug some sort of a really tricky production situation, you want all the information, what exactly is happening in the system. If you're So that's one level. But you don't want that happening all the time because... That's a lot of information that's getting, you're spending CPU cycles printing that, maybe you're spending uh, space on the hard drive, just kind of filling it up with tons and tons of info. When you're operating a website like PayPal or Twitter or or LinkedIn, these are all companies we've worked at, massive amounts of traffic means that just a few extra lines of, of logging is gigabytes and tens of gigabytes, uh, potentially per hour of data that's not very useful. So most of the time you don't want to be printing that stuff, right? But you want to be printing the important stuff. Uh, because somebody should be able to look at the log and confirm that the process is actually running, it's doing the right thing, it didn't just freeze, and that's why it's not printing, right? So you don't want to be totally quiet. So there's kind of a level of logging, which is kind of general information. I boot it up, I'm ready, I'm listening to requests, I process some requests, you know, things are all going swimmingly. And then there is a sort of, oh my God, an error happened, what do you do then? So that's the the notion of log levels. Depending on what kind of situation you're in, you want to be able to turn on different levels of of logging to give you more information, but you don't want more than you need because you get overwhelmed very easily as a a human or even as as a system. Another thing with logging is that we very strongly advocate for structured logging. Structured logging meaning it's machine consumable, not just human consumable. Logging should be machine consumable, because uh, so let's say that you're running a web service, right? Well, the logs are probably going to get consumed by some system like what's called ELK, Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. It's a very common combination. Uh, Logstash takes your logs and slurps them up into a central cluster where they get parsed and stored in Elasticsearch so the logs can be searched. So now an operations team or, or the development team can look at does this rare event happen? You know, I'm going to search for the string that I log to see if it's happening on any of the instances of my service, right? To make that convenient and easy, you want structure. Uh, probably you want to log in JSON. That's a very common choice. But also not just like random JSON where you just throw in whatever kind of keys and values, uh, but something that can be 
planned for and expected because then this Elasticsearch, uh, Logsearch, Kibana combo or another similar platform can be tuned to sort of create create various dashboards or uh, give you alerts when things happen, etc. Right? Like it needs to know what it's looking for. And the more it's kind of parsing freeform text, the more CPU cycles it's spending on something that isn't particularly valuable when you could just tell it where to look by by having named fields. Makes sense. Do you have any anecdotes about a time when logging either saved you or became some deeply insightful piece of your process? I, I actually have a story about the reverse, which, <laughs> which is uh, when I when I worked at in the early days at LinkedIn, we used a system called Splunk, which is loosely analogous to the Elk stack that, that Dimitri was just talking about. And the thing, we didn't have enough resources to really run it in a way where it was responsive. So we effectively couldn't see our logs. The only way we could see our logs was we could go to the, the SREs and ask them to you know, log into the individual machine that had a problem and then like tail the logs so that we could see it. Because of course, they don't grant production access to all the engineers, which is again, a shocking thing that, that new engineers don't always expect, but like you most likely will not be able to log into the machines that are running your software. And so <laughs> you, you need to think about how you would debug a system in that mode. And so I found myself spending just this inordinate amount of time, like wandering over, you know, there's probably like a path worn in the rug between my desk and the SREs that, that had login access to the, the machines because like I, I had put a bunch of logging in, but then the system, the Splunk system that we had wasn't, wasn't keeping up with us. So that eventually got fixed and that was a whole other system and, and process to get going again. But like, I don't, until you go without logs in a production environment, you don't really know how important they are in debugging stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I have a little bit of a story. When I joined Twitter, it was pretty small when I first joined it. Uh, it was like 100 people. And we had logs and we had we were running a system called Hadoop, uh, which maybe the new generation doesn't know about, for collecting all those things. Uh, but we hadn't yet standardized on how logs get formatted. And so it was sort of whatever is the natural way for a particular language ecosystem or framework uh, to log things, that's how things would, would get written. And so if you're running like the Apache HTTPD server, it has the Apache log format, which is parsable, but it's kind of plain text format that has a, a bit of delineation with like tabs and columns and things. And uh, if you're running a Ruby process, well, that's a Ruby on Rails logs in a different way, which is a really hilarious standard that like, you name your fields, and then the fields get printed in alphabetical order by field name. So if you add a new field, all your offsets are messed up. And you can imagine the hilarity that went on with that. And then, you know, if you're running Scala, then maybe you're doing something completely different. And so we had this collection of awful parsers and regular expressions that tried to parse all this stuff. And uh, I used to give talks at conferences with our real production, like regular expression for parsing these logs. And just seeing how messed up that is with all the different captures and backtick, it was pretty, uh, pretty impressive. And then saying like, look, we could be doing that and maintaining this regular expression for parsing your log, or you could log in JSON or Thrift or Avro or what have you. And then it's just, you know, log message dot get field foo. And there it is. And nobody needs to think about how to parse it anymore, right? And it really shines a light on, on, on why that's important. Makes sense. 
Well, you both have worked at some very well-known brand name companies, the types of companies that a software engineer would aspire to work at because they're you know, known for being tech forward. But every company seems to need a software engineer these days and not you know, only 20% of the people can work in the top 20%, so to speak. So I think there'll be a lot of people finding themselves at companies that are, uh, let's say, early in their tech journey or maybe developing, aspiring to be more tech forward. Can you comment on how some of the lessons from the book will translate into that more pioneering space that probably a lot of the listening audience will find themselves in at some point in their journey? Yeah, I think a few things jump to mind. One of them is, I think just because a company isn't, you know, quote unquote, tech forward doesn't mean they, they don't have these problems and are not solving them. And so I think you have to be <laughs> somewhat realistic about the environment you're in and what you try to change. And so we talk early on, for example, about this whole movement, use boring technology, which is sort of this pragmatic, practical philosophy that talks about, you know, the thing you're trying to do is solve a business problem. And the way that you do that happens to be with software. So you need to be very selective about where you try and innovate with new software versus where you just try and use the tried and true thing. So um, I think we have some philosophical stuff like that that I think dovetails very well with you know more traditional companies or companies that are just getting started in the you know sort of uh, software engineering journey. I think, like Chris said, we put a lot of emphasis on first figure out what your team does and and why they do that, and we try to explain some of the ways they might be doing it in the book. But of course, we can't cover all of them. And if they're doing something we're not covering, it doesn't mean they're wrong. You know, maybe that's the right thing for the company. So. Definitely would not want people to sort of brandish our book and say, everybody should be using this way to run their sprints or something. So picking, you know, what things need to change, I think is important and why, and kind of understanding what's there and for what reason. We happen to work at some brand name companies, uh, also at some non-brand companies that potentially later became brand name companies. There's always something to change or to improve. And a lot of the sort of Leading technology now that is commonly adopted didn't come out of the, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and the LinkedIns of the world. You know, Django came out of, uh, if I remember correctly, some sort of a publishing uh, outfit, and they needed a web framework and they created one for for Python. A lot of these things actually come out of fairly small shops. So it's it's not necessarily well. That's that's the way Google does it. This is a really messed up answer. Let's cut all of that. Let me, let me take another crack at sort of the brand name part of it. But like, I think one of the things we've, we've tried to highlight is like, there are a set of problems and, you know, regardless of whether you're working at some, you know, forward looking tech company, quote unquote, like Google or Facebook or whatever, or whether you're working at a very traditional company, the, the problems by and large are the same. It's collaborating with other engineers, it's committing your code and releasing your code. And this is true even whether you're doing web service development or mobile development or embedded systems. Now, the way that you get your software, you know, onto an embedded system is different, but uh, build and release, there are, you know, sort of standard principles and practices that, that can translate. And so I think what we're, a lot of what we cover in the book is so best practices that apply to this, these set of problems, regardless of whether you find yourself in a you know, very modern tech company or a more traditional one. And I think to kind of couch that, we give some guidance on stuff like this use boring technology movement where we're, we're somewhat cautious. Um, you know, I've been the, the young, very passionate engineer that tries to, you know, manifest change in an organization and, and you know, write everything in Scala instead of Java and, and you know, use this build system and that, that test system. And I think one of the things we, we just want to push is just 
pragmatism. So if you find yourself in a, in a company that is still not as forward looking or has frankly other concerns on their mind, you have to be somewhat thoughtful and practical and realize that, you know, you, you have only so many, as they use boring technology, people say only so many innovation tokens that you can spend. And the, it may not be best for the business to spend them all on, uh, you know, some monadic Haskell build system or something. So I think that's sort of how we try and balance it. But in all, I think that a lot of what we talk about applies to pretty much uh, every company that's, you know, trying to work with software. Absolutely. Yeah, there are a few things like, you know, continuous integration and even more rarely continuous deployment is sort of a, an ideal that has been bandied about a lot and, and a lot of folks strive for that. And so if you sort of read in a book like ours about continuous integration or, or like you read Accelerate or one of those other books, uh, and it's a, it's a great idea. And then you are at a shop that releases their software once a month. You know, should you just say, oh, my God, I'm in the dark ages and these people are doing everything wrong? Maybe not. You know, continuous integration is, is great and there's very good reasons for it. Going zero to 60 on something like that isn't the right thing to do. So starting to look at, well, how can I improve my uh, feedback loops and quickly understand whether the code is, is working or not? And how do I reduce the amount of risk we look at with each deploy? That's important. And so you can start looking at that, but sort of immediately trying to, oh my God, how do we release as soon as we commit so that we go from once every 30 days to once every five minutes? That's probably going to break a lot more than, than you expect and not provide the value that you want to provide, right? So you, you balance with everything, I think. You know, I work at a company right now where we work with a lot of scientists. We can't just change the the front end on them for scientific tools as quickly as we develop it, right? Like they, they can't absorb change that fast. They would rather get a new training once a month or something uh, about all the new tools and how things are changing. And there's kind of a rollout process with that. So do we just say they're doing it wrong and we're going to force change upon them, right? Well, that's probably not the right thing to do. Uh, if we, they rightly want to focus on the science and not on relearning the tool every day because it changed under them, right? However, we can do things like push things out behind feature flags so that we can easily turn them on or off or do things like dark reads and dark writes where we see if the system will work under the covers even though we didn't actually change anything visible to the user. These are advanced techniques that can be put in place without sort of exposing all of the velocity of change uh, to, to your end user. Without something like that, you can just go in our case, and just ship all these changes to people, right? So that's where maybe something technology forward like continuous integration isn't, or continuous deployment rather, isn't the right thing for in a particular situation. So you kind of have to understand why the thing that you think is technology forward isn't there and what are the reasons, and then figure out the path forward where bringing the good things without forcing something that's unnatural to the organization. Good advice. Well, I think the missing README is a great uh, reference guide for any software engineer. Could also make a great manager's gift for a new employee. Where can listeners pick up a copy? Yeah, my thought with writing this book was that more so the tech leads and the software managers will, will be buying them by sort of the dozen to give to new engineers because new engineers don't yet know that they need it, right? That's the whole problem. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on nostarch.com. That's our publisher. You can buy it everywhere books are sold, Barnes & Noble, what have you. It's distributed worldwide, so uh, enjoy. ebook or physical copy, whatever you want. Very cool. We'll have some links in the show notes so people can follow up. And where can they follow up with you guys on social media? 
So I am at SquareCog on Twitter. And I'm uh, at C Riccomini on Twitter. My C and then my last name, which is a long one. Very cool. Well, Dimitri and Chris, thank you both so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. You bet. Appreciate having us. Yeah. My pleasure.